What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. Hello and welcome to a a special edition of Deep Trouble. That was then, this is now, involved young adults and award-winning writers coming together on stage to discuss much-loved modern classics that have made an impact on them. It was produced in partnership with the Castlemaine Children's Literature Festival and the Castlemaine Library. The event featured Robin Anir and Cohen Saunders, who spoke about The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton, Ali Marnie and Rosa Carrington, who spoke about A Wrinkle in Time by Madeleine Lengel, Kate Kennedy and Abigail Meadows spoke about To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Griffin Windsor and Kristen Gill spoke about The Hobbit by J.R. Tolkien. The event took place on 7th November 2018 in the Fee Broadway Theatre, Castlemaine. It was initiated and produced by Lisa D'Onofrio. This event was supported by the Regional Centre for Culture Program, which is a Victorian government initiative in partnership with the Jar Jar Wurrung Clans Aboriginal Corporation and through a Mount Alexander Shire community grant. Well, let's make a start. Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name's Jess, and I'm the manager here at the library, and I'm so glad to welcome you all here tonight... I'd like to acknowledge that the Castlemaine Library is on Jarajarawurrung country, and I extend my appreciation for the Jarajarawurrung people, the traditional owners of the land that we gather on. I pay my respects to the leaders and elders, past, present and emerging, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and the hopes of the Jarajarawurrung peoples. Castlemaine Library have been working in partnership with the Castlemaine Children's Literature Festival for eight years now. And I must say, we've done some pretty fantastic events together, but I don't think I've been as excited as I have about this one. It's pretty exciting for me. Uh, When Lisa shared her idea with me, I jumped at the opportunity to help her facilitate it, because aside from the great reference to S.E. Hinton, the idea of hearing different generational perspectives on this classic book was quite irresistible to me. At the library, we love hearing from writers and authors and bookish kind of people, But we also love hearing from young people and giving them a chance to be heard in return. So two worlds collide tonight. To tell you a little bit more about how this evening will work, I'd like you to help me welcome Director of the Castlemaine Children's Literature Festival and Literacy Advocate, Lisa D'Onofrio. Thanks, Jess. Eight years. And surely, book dominoes. Was that... (laughs) Not extremely exciting, Jess. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to That Was Then, This Is Now. And basically, I think it was just an excuse for me to use that title because it's a, a great title. I had the idea for this event for a few years... Um, and it came to me as I had to reread some classic novels for a book group I was running. And I, I reread these books and realised that the view I had of them now 
differed greatly to what I had when I first read them and subsequently read them at different stages in my life. So I thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if we got people together to talk about that and the impact certain books had on them at certain stages of their lives. So hence uh, the event was born. So that's what tonight is about. We're so blessed in Castlemaine to have such amazing, amazing people living in our midst and to have a lineup like this is pretty freaking awesome. That's all I can say. My own little bit of housekeeping, I'm just telling you about the format of the event. We've got four pairs and each of them will be talking about one particular book. So each pair will get up, have a little chat, talk about the book and then the next pair will come up and at the end there will be a Q&A session. So, without further ado, please welcome our first couple for tonight, Abigail Meadows and Kate Kennedy. Thank you, Lisa, and thanks everyone for coming along. This is such a, a pleasure to be able to talk about what's clearly the best book ever written. <laughs> My name's Kate. I really remember reading this as a teenager and being so affected by it. I think the characters in this story might say I was slapped upside the head by this book. And I think, well, the book's been, you know, published in 1960s. You probably know it's sold over 30 million copies. The author won the Pulitzer Prize. It's been translated into 40 different languages. I'm not alone in saying that it's incredibly influential and extraordinary piece of writing. And I have been lucky enough to be matched up with Abigail Meadows, who's a young writer, reader, lover of literature. And so we are going to talk about what we feel about To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. So I'm going to ask you a question first, if that's OK, Abigail. Yeah, I'd like to know well, that question that Lisa was saying. I think you read this book when you were a bit younger and you've read it again yeah. now, just recently. Yeah. How has it affected you and how did you sort of come across it and stuff? Well, I read it in year eight, so I was about 13, I think, because mum said, oh, you should, you should read this, it's a classic. So, all right. And I, I was a bit slow to start with, but I, I know I really got into it, read it in a day, loved it. And then I came back to it this year because we studied it for school in year 11 mm. and... Wow, it just hit me how brilliant it is. Like, mm. I got such a deeper, richer appreciation for it the second time. Absolutely. Do you, do you think that deeper, richer appreciation is to do with the kind of undercurrents and themes of the story, which at first, when you were younger, you didn't really sort of drill into or didn't really pick up? Is it you that's um, changed? I guess yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. It's me that's changed. I can't put my finger on why, but mm. yeah. Mm. So. We thought we'd have a talk about the things that we particularly loved about this book in terms of its impact on us. Yeah. And one thing that we talked about was we particularly, Abigail and I, both loved the genius of creating a book that's about racism, it's about compassion, it's about gender, it's about class and courage, these big, big themes, which can often be a bit indigestible in a very earnest book, but to create a child's voice, create a child's protagonist that sees this world and talks about this world and lets us into that limited point of view that we mm. as, as readers kind of know more than she does and it creates this incredible sort of 
dramatic engagement, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, Scout's voice is just so moving. She's, I don't know how old she is. She's meant to be six. Six, yeah. Mm. And it's like, oh, it's like such huge themes and yet it's like the summer that it's really set over is like her big loss of innocence, really. Her, mm. Like the moments where she's struck by racism for the first time, mm. she's like, wow. Mm. That's so moving. And it's so masterful how it's written and how huge and overwhelming some things are. And It is a coming of age. It does seem like, even though she is meant to be only six years old, there's this beautiful kind of crunching of time and place where we're looking at a little town, which is Maycomb in Alabama in the 1930s, I guess it is, isn't it? Yeah. Which is a kind of height of... Yeah, 1930. And there's a case... A lot of people have looked at how Harper Lee based this on her own childhood and events had happened in her own life when she was growing up in Alabama when she was about 10. She came from a town that was called Monroeville or something, or something very similar, and there are parallels, obviously. But that idea of a child seeing something that's out of their control and watches the adult world behave in a way which is just fairly awful. Yeah, and which adults seem so desensitised to, whereas it's just so shocking for children who... Oh, it's just not normal yet. That's um, right. Yeah. And there's some parts of the book that we particularly loved that do that stuff. But first we're going to talk about the amazing thing we both found about the book when we both read it for the first time. I remember this as well, reading it, and I sat there and totally plunged into it. It felt like I was being hypnotised by a voice. And that just something I have just always sought myself to try and do. I want you. I want to give you the jolt. Something has given me that feeling, and it's because of this book. So what we did, Abigail and I found the parts that we loved where this tone and this atmosphere and voice gets established. And something we both loved about it was how visual the book is. Like mm. It's like watching a film being yeah. played in your head. Like I especially was struck by it when I read it this year. It was like coming back to it after about three years. Mm -hmm. And the pictures were still so vivid in my mind. And mm. like all the imagery is just so fantastic. Like It's a book with so many colours and feelings attached to it and the whole sensory experience of being a child. Mm. And, That's oh, true. So good. There's that sense of like you're a camera. Yeah. And like in a great film, and this has been made into a great film, by the way, Gregory Peck is Atticus, let's face it. I mean, you know, he's the guy. <laughs> And the director filmed it in black and white quite deliberately because he wanted to make that stylistic decision to show you something very serious about the question, I guess, of race and colour and division and, you know, binary. But it is like the camera at the beginning swoops us down into something small and then we're completely immersed in it. At the end, it kind of swoops us back. So we're going to just read a little bit out to you each to show you how this kind of opens and closes the world so you can listen to that writing for yourself. This is at the very beginning of the book. Maycomb was an old town, but it was a tired old town when I first knew it. In rainy weather, the streets turned to red slop. Grass grew on the sidewalks. The courthouse sagged in the square. Somehow it was hotter then. A black dog suffered on a summer's day. Bony mules hitched to hoover carts flicked flies in the sweltering shade of the live oaks on the square. Men's stiff collars wilted by nine in the morning. Ladies bathed before noon after their three o'clock naps and by nightfall were like soft tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. People moved slowly then. They ambled across the square, shuffled in and out of the stores around it, took their time about everything. A day was 24 hours long but seemed longer. There was no hurry, but there's nowhere to go. Nothing to buy and no money to buy it with. Nothing to see outside the boundaries of Maycomb County, but it was a time of vague optimism for some of the people. 
Maycomb County had recently been told had nothing to fear but fear itself. So we just located instantly in a time and place. And Abigail's going to read as the camera zooms out at the end and takes us away from that world again. So this is right at the end of the book. And it's my favourite passage of the whole book. I love it. It gives me, like, shivers every time. It makes me cry a bit because it's so moving and it's, it really captures the... Oh, it sounds like such a silly thing to say since it's a book about so many huge things like race and childhood and class. But um, what I'm really struck and moved by is the loneliness of all the characters in this small town, like... Boo Radley, Mayella, Atticus, every character really is very alone. So this bit is, again, it's a zooming out and it's sort of like a very visual montage of the whole book in a way, but it's reflecting on Boo Radley, who's like a hermit, I think, and his love for the two children, Scout and Jem. And it's sort of like, how does he have the right to love them, even though he doesn't know them, he doesn't know anyone? Anyway, it's beautiful. Daylight. In my mind, the night faded. It was daytime and the neighbourhood was busy. Miss Stephanie Crawford crossed the street to tell the latest to Miss Rachel. Miss Morty bent over her azaleas. It was summertime, and the two children scampered down the sidewalk towards a man approaching in the distance. The man waved, and the children raced each other to him. It was still summertime, and the children came closer. A boy trudged down the sidewalk, dragging a fishing pole behind him. A man stood waiting with his hands on his hips. Summertime, and his children played in the front yard with their friend, enacting a strange little drama of their own invention. It was fall, and his children fought on the sidewalk in front of Mrs. Dubose's. The boy helped his sister to her feet, and they made their way home. Fall, and his children trotted to and fro around the corner, the day's woes and triumphs on their faces. They stopped at an oak tree, delighted, puzzled, apprehensive. Winter and his children shivered at the front gate, silhouetted against a blazing house. Winter and a man walked into the street, dropped his glasses and shot a dog. Summer, and he watched his children's heart break. Autumn again, and Boo's children needed him. Atticus was right. One time he said you never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. Just standing on the Radley porch was enough. It's beautiful, isn't it? Genius. Because, of course, you're reading it at first thinking, oh, it's Atticus that she's talking about. It's the father. But it's not. His children. It's the loner who's who's trapped in his house looking at his town, and they're like his children. He's their protector, even though they don't know it. And this is the thing about small town life, isn't it? I suppose the people don't know the effect they have on each other. They feel alone, but in fact the interdependency, which of course happens so beautifully in the book, doesn't it, where Boo ends up saving their life in this Mm -hmm. fantastic way, even though he's invisible to them in lots of ways and they're a bit afraid of him because he's a recluse for all sorts of reasons of his own. And the kids spend like the first half of the book just building up the myth around Boo Radley and how awful he is. And then you reach the end of the book and Scout has reached this sort of enlightenment, like she's matured so much and yet you can tell that it's written looking back on these events Mm. of her childhood but she just resists from putting any hindsight in there it's just like so raw and in the moment even though you can feel her development and her loss of innocence really and those two big things that have happened there's some simultaneous things there's like the big plot which is the court 
you know, Tom case. Robinson, yeah. There's a terrible central plot in the story, if you don't know it. Um, that we haven't even touched on yeah, yet. Yeah, <laughs> which, which is the story, um, which is that Atticus, who's um, Scout's father, is a lawyer, and he represents an African-American who you know has got no hope of winning the case. He's been accused of rape, and it's just this, the way it all unfolds and unspins is just so tragic. And you're tragically aware of what's going to happen in a way that Scout, of course, is not. So there's this incredible yeah, kind yeah. of pressure. And yet there's this other plot about Scout's perception of the unknown, which, of course, is her neighbour, Boo Radley. So there's this wonderful sense of heroism all around. It doesn't just belong to Atticus as the hero, although mm. he is such a heroic character. He's a very... He's a character who sees and experiences this kind of awfulness about human nature mm. and yet he still finds compassion yeah, in his yeah. heart. He still doesn't give up yeah, on his belief in the empathy really. It is, isn't yeah. it? In a really interesting way. So anyway, we completely loved it and loved um, it. Yeah. Loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's changed us. Which you can't ask for more than that. You know, Scout goes in one way and she comes out a bit changed. You as a reader go in one way and you come out a bit changed. Yeah. That is an amazing gift of literature, isn't it? So, hey, thanks for the chat. Thanks, Kate. Okay, <laughs> thanks, you guys. To follow the love fest that was To Kill a Mockingbird, we have uh, Rosa Carrington and Ali Marnie, who will be talking about A Wrinkle in Time. So please welcome Rosa and Ali. Hi. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having us. Hey, Rosa. How are you going? Good, thank you. Now, we sort of talked about how we would introduce each other, didn't we? Um, So... Rosa, you're in Year 7. Are you up at the local high school? Yep. At Castlemaine High, secondary college. And um, you are a reading enthusiast, and you like sci-fi and adventure most of all. Is that right? Yep. And your favourite authors are Emily Rodder yep. and John Green. He's not sci-fi. No, he's not. No, he's but... not, but he's... <laughs> Adventures in a different way. And Rick Riordan, who's very popular in my house as well. And all of those authors are huge in my house. So we're going to be discussing A Wrinkle in Time by Madeleine Lengel, which is an amazing book. And it completely sent me back to the day that I... I think the day that I first read it. Do you want to tell everybody who I am? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is Ellie Money. Um, Everyone's probably out of her. <laughs> I don't know about everyone. <laughs> uh, she is a teacher and YA author who loves creating new worlds f- with words. Her favourite authors are Cassandra Clare, Melina Machetta, mm-hmm. and Stephen King. Yeah. Her latest series is called Circus Hearts, and it will be at Stoneman's Book Room and Castlemaine Library next month. Yeah, I'm excited about that. But how long ago since you first encountered A Wrinkle in Time? I think I read it a, a few years ago, I think, but I completely forgot about it, and then I read it again. And So uh, you would yeah. have been about 11, I, 10 or 11 when you first read it? I think so. I'm not really sure. Yeah, okay. And you've come back to it again? <laughs> yeah. And what was your experience of it the second time around? I kind of understood it a lot better than I did before, and it... Like, it just amazed me because it was just really well written. And, yeah. Yeah. 
I think the first time that I read this book, I kind of read this whole series out of order. So the first time I read it, I was about your age, or I was probably a bit younger, I was probably about grade six, I think. And I picked up the third book in the series, because I don't know if you know, but this is the first of, is it four? I think there's A Winkle in Time, A Wind in the Door, and then A Swiftly Tilting Planet. And I think the final book is called A Ring of Bright Water. And I think the first one I picked up was A Swiftly Tilting Planet. And I remember I grabbed it because it had a girl riding a Pegasus on the front cover. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, I didn't realise that I was reading a series completely out of order until I got to the end of the book. And then I I realised that, oh, there's some backstory here that I have to follow up (laughs) about Meg Murray and her little brother, Charles Wallace, who are whisked into... Well, other planets, other yeah. dimensions, yeah. So the second time that you, you came to it, what was it that, you know, really grabbed you as being... I mean, the first time you read it, you said did you, you didn't quite get it. I, yeah, I was... Um, you know, I understood the plot and everything. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, you read it again and you just realise the way it's written is just... Yeah. <laughs> what sort of things jumped out at you I think the second time around because the way that they like explained the wrinkle in time how they explained the concepts yeah and how they explained a tesseract and all of that yeah I would not have understood it if it was written in another way because conceptually it's quite tricky isn't it and I remember when I first picked it up I thought the first couple of pages that I read, I thought, oh, this girl, Meg, she is really into maths. And I was not into maths. <laughs> I, was like, I was like negative maths at school. So for me, the whole experience of identifying with a character who was really into mathematics and with a book itself that was explaining really complex problems in mathematics and science, for me, that was a whole new experience. And I felt really smart after I'd finished reading for the first time. I was like, oh, wow, I really got that. There's a scene in the book where Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who and Mrs. Which are explaining the fifth dimension. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. They're explaining it to Meg and... Charles Wallace and Calvin, uh, who's come along for the ride, who's their, their a friend from down the road, and they're trying to explain it to Meg, and she just can't get it. And so most of the time that I was in school, I felt uh, quite a lot like that, that I just didn't get a lot of things. And then finally she says, oh, oh, I think I got it just for a second there. I got it. And so... <laughs> That was my experience of reading the book, I think, the first time. It was like, oh, I kind of understand this fifth-dimensional thing, but only for, like, a split second. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about covers, too, because your cover... Do you want to hold it up and show everyone? That's kind of a more contemporary cover, I think. That was released prior to the movie, is that right? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, so, and this cover is the one that, that I bought for my kids, like, uh, a couple of years ago. And now the only covers I think that you can buy are the ones with Oprah Winfrey on the front. Yeah, I know. I find this a bit disappointing. (laughs) But this cover isn't the one that that I grew up with, and it's not the one that I picked up off the shelf. The one that I originally picked up had a dark blue, purpley kind of cover with this spinning figure in space. 
Yeah, does anybody remember that one from the, from the Wayback Machine? Yeah. So I think the thing that grabbed me about this book when I first read it was, apart from the fact that Meg was mathematical and I wasn't, I really did identify with her as a character. She's someone who doesn't really feel like she fits in. She talks a lot about how she feels different and awkward and unusual. And I think that was certainly how I felt when I was about 12 or 13. And she's about 13, I think, in this book. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So what did you think of Meg? Was, was Meg the, the person that you were drawn to or was there another character in the book that you really focused on? Like, she's a very unique character, but it's in a way, like, everyone can relate to her in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, she was pretty incredible. I think the way that Charles Wallace was written, <laughs> that was incredible. How old was he, like, five he was, or six? Yeah, look, we were, yeah. I was trying to figure that out. Because Meg's about 12, 13, is that right? Yeah. And then, and then she said she's the oldest. Mm. And then she's got two brothers, Sandy and Dennis... Yeah, and who are twins. And then there's Charles Wallace, who's the baby. Yeah. And so I sort of always imagined him as being about, I don't know, seven or eight years old. Yeah, I, th I think it mentioned that, I don't know, I can't remember, but it said that he was really young. But uh, his vocabulary was, I can't even pronounce <laughs> that word. Um, <laughs> uh, like, that was amazing. Do you think he still comes across as like a kid, though? In a way... You'd think someone like that, he's, he's a kid, he wouldn't be able to speak like that. But the way that he was written into the book, it seemed like almost believable yeah, that he could. That he could do that. And that he still kind of retained those qualities of being like really young, you know, like only seven or eight. Even though he was using these really big words, he was still, he still sort of seemed young. The way he used to take Meg's hand and, you know, he would. she talks about how he would hug her and put his hand up against her cheek and all that sort of thing is sort of reminded you of a little baby. And mm. she talks sometimes about the baby roundness in his face. But um, each of the characters, I think, brings something important to the story. Mrs Murray, Meg's mother, and Mr Murray, who is the focus of their search. Can you explain for people what the story is about? It's basically about Meg and her father has been missing for uh, quite a few years and her brother Charles Wallace finds these three like old ladies and he says, oh, they can help us find their father. And so basically the book is about them like travelling to different planets and eventually when they find the right planet they have to go through uh, things on uh, that planet to be able to find her father and that basically sorry they, they have to go through a number of trials they have to kind of prison break their father don't they yeah from this planet called Kamazots which has been taken over by the black thing do they ever explain exactly what the black thing is i think they said it was it was like a brain mm. and it's trying to take over like take over people's minds and at the end, they find out the one thing that it doesn't have is love, and then that's how they destroy it. That's how they destroy it, yeah. So there was kind of a lot of central themes in the book. That probably wasn't the thing that I was focused on the most when I mm. first read it. 
But they were the things that came back to me when I've gone back to it again and again. The themes of love, conquering evil and hate, and this was the thing that I really loved the best, was um, that it was Meg's faults that were actually the key to unlocking her resistance. And they said, you know, stay angry, use your impatience, be stubborn. You know, all of the things that you're usually berated for as a young girl. And she was able to wield those things as weapons against the black thing, against it on camisots, which I loved. Mm -hmm. So was there one thing, one special thing that you wanted to say about the book? I just really liked the whole uh, idea the of it, and it's very original, and it was really great. <laughs> did you see the movie? Uh, I did, and... What did you think? If I had seen the movie before I read the book, I think <laughs> it was all right. But I, I watched the movie, and I was pretty disappointed. You were disappointed. Like, they took out a bunch of very important things, yeah. and they changed a lot of things. I didn't... The book is always better, isn't it? Yeah. Really, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, for Thank you, Rosa and Ali. And I've got a confession to make. Out of the four books today, that's the one I haven't read. And it was purely because I did judge a book by its cover. And I think it was on the bookshelf at home, and it had a really awful cover. And it just frightened me, I think, as a kid. And I always stayed away from Maybe I knew it was because it had maths in it. <laughs> so, But now I am inspired to give it a go and read it. So thank you both. And our next pair that we've got on tonight are Kristen and Griff. So please welcome Kristen and Griff. And again, thanks for coming tonight. And I'm really looking forward to chatting to Griff. Tonight's the first time we met, but we've got a lot to talk about. So Griff is in Year 6 at a school in Bendigo in Kangaroo Flat. And he is an obviously a very keen reader and, again, a, a reader of fantasy mostly. Is that right, Griff? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a bit of a ring in here because I'm not a writer, but I love books. Do you want to just start chatting about the start book? Yeah, let's just start book. chatting about the book. So I'm going to start by saying this is the first time I've read The Hobbit and I'm really, really pleased that I've been given the chance to read The Hobbit because just about everybody else I know in the world has read The Hobbit. So it was high time I read it. So thanks for that, Griff. I really appreciate the push because I have a bit of a thing where I think if there's a map in the book, I can't do it. <laughs> It, it already I think it's going to be too hard there's going to be too much to remember and too many different people but I just really really enjoyed it I relaxed into this story tell us about how you first came to The Hobbit when I first came to The Hobbit it was it wasn't even me reading it it was my mother reading it to me through this exact book and how old were you? I was about five she was just reading it to me in bed and um, I had no idea that it was just this magic. And she actually gave me nightmares about God. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, Mum. <laughs> but she did give me the habit of whenever I see a map in the book, I think, this is my book. OK. Yeah. And when you were five and your mum was reading it to you, did she have to explain much about what was going on and who everybody was? Or did you feel like you completely understood it and every night it was a treat? Uh, 
well, some nights she had to explain stuff to me, like how rings cannot make you invisible. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, I was very disappointed that night. Yeah. <laughs> but the rest of the times, like with the goblin cave, I had already known about no goblins. So some parts just were really nice as well. And when you came back to read it as an older person, did you read it differently? Did you feel the story was different to that time because you were comprehending things differently? Yeah, it was just a lot easier to read now that I had heard a lot more of the words and how I had learned that dragons really love gold (laughs) and that it was a really good book from everyone and I was one of the few people in my class that had actually read it Mm -hmm. so I took something away from that as well. Yeah. Did other kids go away and read it after you talked about it so fondly? Nope. No, didn't they? (laughs) Not at all. You couldn't convince them? Sadly, no. (laughs) I tried, but everyone else was reading The Very Hungry Caterpillar (laughs) at the time I was talking about it. I thought you were going to say everyone else saw the map and thought, I'm not reading that. No. No. (laughs) They don't have you tastes. They don't have those good tastes. One of the things we talked about in the lead up to this was the characters themselves and you've talked about the drag and you've talked about the hobbit himself yeah. but one of the things you said you liked about this story was you got to know the characters as the story went on yeah some of the dwarves like twins they had one unique skill that for some reason always happens with twins for no reason whatsoever it's just a twin thing and usually the one that goes last in line is usually either the fat or the stupid one. <laughs> this time it was both. <laughs> and um, it was just surprising to see how something that was so small was even smaller than dwarves. Mm-hmm. And how even wizards that had really strong magic powers could have such a hard time with goblins and how goblins could sing so well (laughs) what about Bilbo Baggins oh Bilbo um (laughs) right at the start he was very not adventurous apart from the Turkish side in him that occasionally came out to have a go at his body but when the Turkish side wasn't out he was scared of everything and occasionally I related to that as with the part with the spiders, I absolutely hate spiders. <laughs> but he showed bravery to them, and so I'm a little braver around spiders. At least the daddy long legs. What I liked about that character, him, and he was my favourite character, because you couldn't help but love him and, and kind of barrack for him a little bit. You know, to hope that he survived this whole thing. Because when he leaves The Hobbit, he's completely out of his comfort zone, isn't he? And that's another thing that we all have to do at some point. And he kind of ends up being a hero, doesn't he? Yeah. He does lose the respect of everyone else, though. Along the way. (laughs) Yeah. Because no Hobbit usually has an adventure apart from the side of Bilbo's family. And if they do have an adventure, everyone instantly presumes they are dead <laughs> and proceeds to sell their stuff. Yes, yes. In some ways, it felt a little Indiana Jones to me. Yeah. It was like, but do you know when this book was first published? No, not at all. In 1937. 
And so I'm kind of in awe of someone Griff's age, anyone younger than an adult, reading this book gets so much out of it because the language is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. It's different. How did you cope with the language? I just thought, if I can't understand it, my mum or dad will understand it, and if they can't, we've got three dictionaries in the bookshelf, so that should do it. (laughs) Yeah. But if it didn't, I just went, and it has to be some sort of fantasy term, and just thought up my own explanation for it. And you just go with it. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) What about the landscape? Because that felt... Like, you just immerse yourself in that landscape, too. Yeah. Um, The misty mountains, the way they were described with so much detail was amazing. Mm. Like, how the snowy peaks had had different shapes and sizes, the lonely mountain, very lonely. Even with the misty mountains, with lots of mountains occasionally, and then just you would be able to see just tiny mountains in the distance, Mm. but that was it. They're described so beautifully, just changed the entire book's perspective for mm. me. And you can really see, I've not seen the film. Yeah. It changes oh, it? lots of things. Don't bother with the film? No, the film is okay. It just changes a few things, which, as movies go, isn't that many changes. And they do add a few things that make it feel a little better than if you read the book. Mm. Okay. But um, other than that, yeah, the movie was okay. Oh, that's good. Because I, I kind of imagined that all that New Zealand landscape was the perfect yeah. setting, really. Mm. And how many times have you read the book, Griff? Uh, around five times. <laughs> so that was now, that was then, that was now, that was then. It just keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. And um, have you read all the series now, Tolkien, Lord yeah, of the Rings? I've tried to, but the Lord of the Rings, I've only read the first two. Mm-hmm. The final one has been a little bit of a challenge to get to because I've tried to find it in a vast amount of books Mm. and I have failed, sadly. (laughs) Dad? (laughs) And my mum as well. She loves books Don't you have a Dewey system on your bookshelf? (laughs) Isn't your dad a librarian? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's holding his head in shame. And last question, how many more times do you intend to read the book, Griff? Oh, at least another five? Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope you get something out of it every time you read it because there, it is complex, but it's a beautiful story. I love it. Yeah. Thanks for taking me there. You're welcome. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much, Kristen and Griff. That was great. So our final couple tonight are Cohen and Robin. And they have chosen a book which I'm really, really glad they did choose because if I was up here talking about a book, it would be this book. And in fact, I could just gush on all, <laughs> all night about this book because that's one of the books that I had to read again when I was talking in the introduction about why I was doing this. And I'm very pleased to say that this book was one that did stand the test of time for me. And... I can't think of anyone who has read it who hasn't loved this book. So I'm thinking that the two next on might love this book also. So please welcome our final pair for tonight, Robin and Cohen. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. And thank you, you guys. Thanks, Griff. I think everyone else is reading The Hungry Caterpillar. 
It's going to be the best <laughs> diss of the century. Um, <laughs> yeah, so about the outsiders, and I'm with Robin Ania. She wears many hats, but we're going to keep this brief. So I'll just mention a podcast that she's launched this year called Nothing on TV, which recalls some stories from the historical Trove newspapers at the State Library of Victoria and tells them from a time when there was actually nothing on TV. That was great. But anyway, hand over to Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this is Cohen Saunders, my partner in crime, who also wears many hats He's a student at Castlemaine Secondary College, is a musician of some note, and I want you particularly to note that when he won the uh, Musician of the Year just last week or so, the judges remarked on his dynamic articulation, so be watching for that tonight. (laughs) Cohen's been active in all sorts of ways around getting students' voices heard statewide, not just in his own school, which is pretty impressive. He he co-hosts a radio show weekly on Main FM, and, of course, he's a reader. And uh, we've talked about what the sorts of things he likes to read, fiction, non-fiction, classics and, and books from right now. So, Cohen, great to have you on Theme Outsiders. Surely <laughs> um, we're the best. I'm uh, going to do a bit of background on the book, shall I? Yeah, yeah. Shall Please I do that? Do. So I'm going to tell you a bit about it just to paint the picture. We're taking a different approach. It was first published in 1967. It's about a close-knit bunch of gang members ranging in age from 14 to 20 from the wrong side of the tracks in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The name of their gang, the Greasers, comes from their long sort of rockabilly do's, liberally slicked back with hair or... Their adversaries are the Socks, who come from the well-heeled... I know you are, you're laughing. From the well-heeled end of town with Mustangs and Madras shirts, but flick-knife-toting hoods, they are all the same. Now, Socks, that's spelled S-O-C-S... And it's short for socials. And Cohen and I both know now that it's meant to be pronounced socials. No. But no. we, as I'm sure most first-time readers, second-time readers and so on, pronounce it in our heads as socks, and so socks it will be tonight too. <laughs> and the novel's told in the voice of 14-year-old pony boy Curtis, a greaser, and he spins a story of loyalty, love and loss of the gang as family, and it builds to a kind of realisation that you see the same sunset or you don't, no matter what side of the tracks you're on. So the key thing to know about the book is it was written by S.C. Hinton between the ages of 15 and 17. It was published when she was just 18. It was her publisher's idea to call her S.E. because they figured that having the name Susan on the cover would put off male readers. Maybe a bit like J.K. Rowling, I don't know. So the book owed much of its fame both at first and still today, I think, to the fact it's a book for teens, about teens and by a teen. And that and its gritty subject matter makes it stand out as, some people say, the original young adult novel. Mm. Okay. Down to questions. I think first, Rosa and Ali, before we're talking about book covers, could you just hold up your oh, yes. book cover? Okay. Um, for those in the radio. Yeah, look, you can't see this, guys, yeah. but it's very brown. <laughs> this was uh, the original British edition, came out in 1970, and that one came out two years later. This has a couple of young, supposed to be hoods. <laughs> yeah. It's very orange, too, on the back, so very 70s. 
a guy with his shirt undone, his thumbs slung in his uh, front pockets, and I notice there's a discarded jeans jacket here uh, on this uh, on this cast-off tyre. So, you know, they're facing off, and it's, it is very 70s. I think we've got the vibe of the book. So, Robin, when did you first read this, and how did you come to it? Mm, good question. This is the book, this very cover is the book that I saw in my school library when I was in grade 5 in 1970. That was the year this book came out in Australia. And and I saw it when I was in grade five on the shelf, on the top of the shelves. And I saw it many times because I was one of those kids who hung around the library. It's not very appealing. It's kind of vaguely chocolate coloured and it's got some guys doing a bit of biffo in a line drawing on the front. Nothing there to appeal to a 10-year-old girl. But the following year, 1971, something had ticked over during the intervening school holidays. I was still 10, but anyway, I took the book off the shelf and it changed my life. Do I save that for the next bit or is that... I, 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 reckon, I can go straight into it now. How did it change your life? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. Well, you know, I stepped into it a child and I came out, well, you know, a, a prepubescent, really. Yeah. That was, that was what happened because... Yeah. I mean, it's all about boys. There are a couple of female characters, but it's really all about boys. I didn't know S.E. Hinton was a girl. It's all about boys, and I just fell in love with the whole scene, particularly with Pony Boy, who's the protagonist, and who at 14 just seemed like a man. Um, and it just... I mean, all I'd read up until then were, were children's books. And in fact, if I read some of the other books offered to the... You know, if you like this, you might like to try these other books that we offer in the front of this 1972 edition. Mary Poppins! <laughs> the Sword in the Stone! The Weird Stone of Brisingham. And, well, maybe. But anyway, you know, you get the drill. There were no other books like this. And it was just... I wanted more. Yeah, and you were saying came out a prepubescent... Um, <laughs> It is touted as a coming-of-age novel and possibly the original coming-of-age novel. And that, like, a lot of YA coming-of-age novels came after. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's totally... It's, it was a groundbreaker. I th- and when I read it now, I read it first when I was about 13 or 14. And at the time, you know, I was reading just, yeah, YA. Modern YA, mostly written in this decade. Yeah. And reading this didn't feel like a young adult book. It felt... It, I actually felt kind of older and I'm not sure what was your experience of that reading it now do you feel like you're reading a young adult book now or do you feel like you're reading a book that could suit any reader I've got to say I feel like I'm reading a young adult book when I read it now yeah 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 it does feel like that to me and I've read books I've read a book written by S.E. Hinton 10, 15 years ago, perhaps, which she she hadn't written a book for ages, and she mm. wrote this one, Hawks Harbour, aimed at adults, not as in... And it read like a young adult book to me. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God, she's still writing the same way. So I can see how it's, it's well, it strikes me as very much in an adolescent voice with an adolescent view of the world. Yeah. I guess that's why it's so transfixing and transforming for someone who's at that age. But you say you came to it at that sort of age. Why did you? Um, Why did you pick it up? Did it look well, like that? <laughs> no, I guess it's kind of fitting for this theme. My mum said, oh, I read this when I was little and now I'm reading it again. It's still just as great. So why don't you read it? But it's changed. Well, it kind of actually really hasn't changed for me. Like I've read it again this year. Uh-huh. I'm 17 and I first read it when I was maybe 13. 
And I don't know what it is, but it's still the same voice. And I feel like if I read most of the YA novels that I was reading back then, I, I just couldn't deal with it. I was really into Aragon in late primary <laughs> school. Started tried to read that in year seven, and it, it was like, oh no. But yeah, it's like, has it changed for you? No, it, it comes back to me powerfully. Yeah. I mean, the, the first line of the book is the same as the last line of the book. Um, yeah. When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I had only two things on my mind, Paul Newman and a ride home. And it just puts you right there, like a punch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wonder how much its enduring qualities have to do with the fact, you know, that it was written by a teenager who was living in the moment of adolescence, you know, that gives it that authenticity that just doesn't age, even though, you know, so many books are written in a teenage voice, but looking back as an adult, this was different. I totally agree. I said this to you the other day, but when I think about this book, when I think about S.E. Hinton writing this, I can just imagine her walking around this school and, oh, she's kind of in (laughs) your body, Abigail, Um, just like walking around the school, just observing and seeing actual situations are going on it's really such a real book that you can relate to as a teenager and even in such a wide range as 13 and 17 which isn't very wide but the mindset is different yeah yeah mindsets are different now see i'm really interested in talking to you in particular about this book because when i do come back and read it i see it as such a girl's book like when i read it now i think how could i not have seen that she was a girl like it just seems to me like a girl's idea of what boys are like of their inner lives you know you have <laughs> pony boy kind of writing his name out in full on you know doodling in class and drawing pictures of ponies and things and it's just like dude like you know but what but did it seem authentic to you about boys it seemed authentic. Maybe not all boys, but there's definitely, like, maybe I could relate to Ponyboy in that way. It's more, more of a sensitive character. It isn't, That's true. It isn't very masculine. Or saying that Dally has been in and out of jail since he was 10 years old yeah. and, you know, he's been to New York and seen people killed on the streets and things like that. But I do see what you're saying. I think that range of characters who are all have such different experiences yet come together over something you never know like what's their common thing yeah like pony boy and dally pony boy is a 14 year old uh he gets straight a's he loves to write and to read and watch sunsets and he's <laughs> yeah, he's a very sensitive character and then dally is the complete opposite and yet they come together and i think that's maybe what's made it appeal to such a wide audience as mm. old and young people and yeah males and females and Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Do you think it's going to endure as a classic, or do you think it will end up just being like this fossil, like an artefact from another time? No, it's it's totally going to endure, I think, <laughs> because it's got a voice that, like, I can't think of a book that is just sitting on the shelf and you think, oh, wow, what a work of literature, but you never read it because it doesn't really draw you in. I don't know, maybe Shakespeare. Maybe Shakespeare's good, I don't really know. Um, I've, yeah. Yeah. Hinton and Shakespeare. <laughs> but I reckon it's, it's that voice, it's the teenage young person voice that is, I think, really will endure because as far as I know, there's nothing really else like it. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's what, uh, that's what carries it. You agree? You yeah, yeah, I think that's what yeah. gives, gives it legs. Whether it means that as a, a you know, 50-something-year-old, you're still going to read it the same way, but you're still, you know, you're going to remember what it was like to be 
when I say read it the same way, you're not going to get the same things out of it, but yeah. you're going to remember what it was like to be that age. And that's yeah, that's okay. quite a magical <laughs> bullet, you know. It's really something. I know Lisa's shuffling her chair, but I just want to say the other thing that I think makes this book and probably many of these books live on is something like fan fiction and I know that The Outsiders has a lot of fanfic mm. written about it where people kind of extrapolate the story and the characters in, in new ways and write new lives off the page for them and of course all of us do that whenever we read one of these books me and my friends when mm. I was 10, 11 we did that, we were <laughs> talking about Pony Boy and Johnny and Soda Pop all the time as if they were our classmates and so something like that carries their lives um, forward too and I can imagine this fan fiction that flourishes online that makes these characters not the characters belonging to the authors who wrote them originally but uh, the readers as well. You mentioned before that there was a fan fiction um, written about uh, Dally and Johnny, uh, an affair. Mm. Yeah. And how S.E. Hinton came out and said, no, that's not what happened. (laughs) Um, Do you think that could have been what happened? Does S.E. Hinton, can S.E. Hinton say that? No, well, I, no. Think that's, I think the thing is, I think they're, yeah. they're all of our characters. Once the book is handed to the reader, as the writer, you've lost it. Like, <laughs> those, because there's so much about every character and about every story that's not on the page. And mm. so, yeah, yeah, the reader keeps on writing it. Yeah. Mm. Thanks, Colin. Oh, Thank you, Robin. Did you want to say something? No, no. That's, okay. That's, yeah. Lisa, Thank you to Cohen and Robin, and I feel like we could have gone on all night, actually, with all those book discussions. So once again, uh, thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight and to coming to this event. Also, just want to thank our funders, Mount Alexander Shire Council and the Regional Centre for Culture. Thanks for the money, guys. So it's with great pleasure I thank our absolutely fabulous panellists tonight, Robin Ania, Cohen Saunders, Griff Windsor, Rosa Carrington, Ali Marnie, Abigail Meadows, Kate Kennedy and Kristen Gill. So that's the last episode in this series of Deep Trouble. I'd like to thank you sincerely for listening first of all and I'd like to thank Steve Charman who has been instrumental in producing this series for us and to Magnificent Main FM for hosting the series. We have some more great interviews lined up for next year, so we'll definitely be back here at Radio Side in 2019, and we hope you can join us for that. In the meantime, you can listen to the Deep Trouble podcast wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to Trouble Magazine at troublemag.com for updates, and or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Maybe just stay out of trouble for a while. Anyway, all the best for the holidays, everyone. Thanks for listening. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle, Maine. <laughs>